there for a while, so I'll just uh, refresh you. Jesus has been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. It's one of the three main feasts, the festivals of the Jews. And he's been there since chapter 7. And the moment he shows up, he's embroiled in controversy and accusations, people uh, not understanding him, accusing him of different things. And wildly, interestingly, Jesus does not nitpick their complaints. Uh, I, I'm, I did philosophy as my undergrad. This is like what I'm trained in, is nitpicking other people's complaints and showing how they're wrong. Jesus does not, interestingly. And uh, instead, he exposes their animosity and wildly, boldly tells them that their animosity and hatred towards him is actually satanic and that they can't hear him, not because he's wrong, but because they actually don't know God himself. So he's not pulling punches here. But what's wild is that uh, in the middle of this passage, where they are throwing accusations at him over and over, the peak of their anger, Jesus gives us some of the clearest words about himself, shows us his gospel, and yet never actually defends himself. So let me read these words to you, and we will jump in. Starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you have a Samaritan, that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to us, for the great power and the glory that you reveal in it, that you are the one in whom all things hold together. And even as we uh, hear about your conflict with uh, these people in Jerusalem, Lord, we pray that you would be opening our eyes to the ways in which, uh, to the ways in which we miss what you do, to the ways in which we uh, fight and uh, promote hatred. But we pray, Lord, rather that you would open us instead to yourself and conform us to your image, that we would share in your character and in your glory as well. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, uh, thinking about how Jesus responds. Interestingly, he says that his glory is good news. Uh, I just want you to know that if you're in a fight with someone, uh, you shouldn't talk about your glory being good news for them. 
especially when they're accusing you of being arrogant, right? Generally not the wise thing to do. So what's Jesus up to here? I want to think in particular about what glory is. How that's good news, how glory is a grace to us. And then lastly, what to do with that. So first, what is glory? What is glory? My brothers and I were all involved uh, in the graffiti scene in the 90s in Seattle. Uh, I was a lightweight. I was, you know, uh, not much. But my brothers were a very big deal in the scene. And we would all spend hours drawing and uh, lots of other things. Uh, And uh, graffiti, interestingly, takes a particular set of skills. Uh, You have to have a real powerful sense of how calligraphy is meant to work. You have to have a sense of composition, how things ought to fit together and what to do. Also, aesthetic selection of colors and uh, laying out things, not to mention uh, the technical skill of using how to learn spray paint. It's very difficult. And if you've only seen ugly graffiti, I'd be happy to show you lots of lovely specimens. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Being illegal as well, it involves other skills. Like uh, climbing on roofs, or uh, dodging cops, or climbing underneath fences, and uh, knowing how to get around trains and not get run over, um, hiding from police, uh, finding places that are visible. And now, now, of course, graffiti is a profoundly selfish thing to do. To be a graffiti artist, you have to assume that my art, my desires, are much more important than whatever it is you were going to do with your own property. Right? That's a profoundly selfish thing, and of course. When I became a Christian, this is one of the first things the Lord really convicted me of, is my uh, self-involvement in this way. But it's interesting and all the more useful for us as we think about glory because of its backwardness. Because, it, in fact, it, it acts as a lens on exactly what most of us are up to the rest of our lives. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, recognition in the graffiti scene is a big deal, right? There are toys at the bottom end, people who don't, count for anything, and then there are big hitters at the top end. These are some of the language they use. My brother, for instance, uh, one of these guys in Seattle who is well-known, climbed up this old rickety steel building right next to the Ballard Bridge, climbed up this fire escape that was collapsing from underneath him, barely hanging on, and leaned over and painted this beautiful piece. And you could see it driving up the Ballard Bridge. It was there, and it was there for years. Right? So everyone knew about my brother's burner, is what they call it, because it stays up burning for a long time. Big deal. Well, one of the biggest events in graffiti history is a guy named Saber, an artist named Saber from L.A. That was the word he wrote. And uh, he was known for having some of the best, uh, most intricate pieces, beautiful work. He, <laughs> over the course of a year, on the concrete banks of the L.A. River, often running for his life from gangs, uh, dodging and navigating some of the strange transients who lived in the area as well, not to mention dodging cops, painted a piece which was 255 feet long and 50 feet tall. That's almost the size of a football field. That's 12,750 square feet. 97 gallons of spray paint. (laughs) You can see it from space. Okay? <laughs> it's massive. And I don't mean like he had a roller and he rolled the let. No, it is beautiful. It's a beautiful work. It was the ultimate triumph in the graffiti scene, right? He flouted the authorities and he was a hero for it. He did the impossible and with impeccable style and execution and a tremendous amount of work. And he pulled it off. 
And so now, not only did he do something beautiful that was worthy of being adored, but actually he would be recognized in the history of all graffiti as the guy who did the biggest, most dangerous piece ever. He could never be forgotten. You had to recognize Saber. He's the man. He triumphed. Some of you are probably a little disgusted. I'm using a graffiti illustration this morning. Clearly, it's illegal. I'm not praising it for that. But I want to use this example because what Saber sought through his vandalism to make a name for himself, to triumph over the authorities, you and I seek in much more sanitized ways. We all seek our own glory, but in the ways that are very culturally agreed upon, in the ways that will always fly under the radar and we'll receive, we'll receive commendation for. We are hungry for glory, and that's what I want to think about this morning. I want to think about what the Bible says about glory. In fact, the Gospel of John talks about glory 48 times, which incidentally is uh, more than all the other instances in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It talks about glory and honor. It's a very central theme for John. It's a big one. In fact, you might know this verse from John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tented among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John speaks of Jesus' glory in the same way the Old Testament spoke of the sanctuary. Right? If you remember the story from Exodus, God uh, saves his people from slavery and leads them out into the uh, desert and leads them by this pillar of fire and cloud. And then in order to be among them, he has them build him a tent. In fact, our kids have been reading about this in Exodus and Leviticus. He builds them, uh, they, they build him a tent, and he moves into the middle of their neighborhood so that he would be among them. And at very specific times in the first five books of the Bible, he would display his glory, it says. God showed his glory. And the sense is that there is such a manifest splendor that everyone is stopped in their tracks. In fact, there's moments where someone's about to be murdered, right? They're about to kill Moses, and God manifests his glory, and everyone steps back. John says that Jesus is that glory in the flesh, now manifested among us, able to be held and touched. And he says, we beheld his glory. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus did signs and manifested his glory, and that is why his disciples came to believe. So it was in displaying his glory that their belief was evoked. So what is glory? It's kind of a Christian word. What is it? I don't, I, we could summarize, we could go through every passage in the Bible and think about it, but I'm just going to do us a favor and keep us uh, under half an hour here um, and give you three headings, uh, subheadings for what glory is in the Bible. So the first category for glory. In the Bible, glory is triumph. Triumph. Uh, the image I want you to think of here is a triumphant warrior after battle. Uh, this is the way Exodus uses it, Exodus 14, 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go into the Red Sea, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and his chariots and his horsemen. That is to say, God defeats them and gets glory in the triumph. Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. That is to say, we 
long to be vindicated from the threats and mocking of our enemy. That's what glory is. To be vindicated when you were being threatened, when you were being chased down, to have God as your shield, the one who lifts your head. And this, of course, is what we seek in boasting and bragging. It's what Saber was saying and what every uh, schoolyard boy says when he wins a game. In your face, I beat you. Right? That's bragging. We are glorying in our triumph. So that's the first category. Second category is glory is attentive delight. Enjoying the beauty, the splendor of another. Turning your attention to and delighting in another. And an image I want you to think of here is a parent with a child. Uh, when my boys uh, make Lego creations or drawings, they bring them to me, and it turns out that they don't want my advice. <laughs> what are they looking for? They're looking for me to enjoy it. They want to tell me every aspect of it, and they want me to praise them for it and to give them my attention and say, this is beautiful. You worked hard on this. I can see what you're thinking here and enjoy it with them. They want me to praise them, to delight in them. And children in their courage, children in their courage stand with open hearts ready to receive this from their parents. It's profound. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. That's number six. Je uh, Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That's 17.5 in the Gospel of John. This desire for glory is uh, perverted as we grow and our hearts begin to uh, not trust and uh, distrust and suspect praise. But we can't help but long for this kind of glory. We long to have the face of another person turned toward us with delight. We long for it. And so we seek it. We seek glory from our spouse, from our children, from our work, our boss, our professional community. Friends, that's exactly what Saber was doing with this piece. He was seeking for attention and delight from his community. Glory, finally, is weight. That's the Old Testament word for it, kavod. That's a good word. It means heavy or weighty. Uh, this is the idea that we have with the sun being the center of gravity in our little cosmos. Right? All the other planets have to orbit around the sun. They don't have a choice. It holds the weight. It is the center of gravity, and everything else has to account for the sun first. This is uh, how you treat your boss. Right? Their voice, their authority, their commands get a heavier weight to them than other people's. Uh, and that's the idea that the Bible has about weightiness with glory. We call it clout or influence. Those are our uh, kind of more modern words for it. And so the Bible talks about giving weight to someone as the way in which we honor them, their significance, their word, their power. Give glory to God is to say to give weight to God. So consider this passage from 1 Samuel 2. This is the Lord speaking. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. So to read it just a smidge more literally, those who give me weight, I will give weight to. Those who despise me, I will make light and trifling. So uh, for many of us who find ourselves working too much and find it very hard to put our work down, 
Uh, often this is the desire at root. Along with wanting a successful project, which really true will, truly will be good for other people, we ultimately hope that the good thing we've accomplished will bring us honor, will bring us weight or clout. We, like Saber, want our name and work to be honored, to be recognized, to be weighty. So that's the Bible's concept of glory. And it's a fascinatingly, wonderfully rich concept. And yet, probably the most important piece of it is that the Bible assumes that we want it. Importantly, the Bible never bashes us for wanting it. Did you know that? The Bible never uh, corrects us for desiring these things. But what it does do is constantly warn us for seeking it for ourselves. So, uh, what do we do with that? Uh, because the reality is, is that we are made for glory. We are made to desire glory. But if you've ever been around someone, I had a good friend who was like this for a long time. Every time I'd tell him about something I did, he would always come back with a story about something that was just a smidge cooler or his joke that was just a little bit funnier, right? Uh, he kind of the me monster, you know, approach, the one-upper. Uh, those people are terrible to be around. It's miserable because they are busy, what? Extracting glory from you. They will get it from you. Oh, yes, they will. That's miserable to be around. So how can glory be a gracious thing? And that's our second point. How can glory be gracious? The answer comes in verses 53 and 54 of our passage. The Jews say to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself... My glory is nothing. I think it's wild to think about Jesus, the Son of God, the one in whom all things hold together, who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory, who should be honored above everyone else in the world and has a right to honor himself, for him to say that if he did honor himself, his glory would be nothing. How could that be? Why is that? Two things here as subpoints. First, God's glory starts with his own humility. God's glory starts with his own humility. Uh, verse 58 tells us this is one of the best passages in the whole Bible. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That is to say that existence is a result of Jesus being, Right? He is the one who is before anything else is. Jesus is the one that Abraham hoped in. And now Jesus enters the story. The word became flesh and tented among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So what kind of glory would we expect for this one to have? When he comes into the story, what kind of a person would we expect Jesus to be? What kind of glory did they behold? Well, they beheld a humble glory. Jesus' whole path towards the cross was a constant refusal to glorify himself, to defend himself, to insist on his own dignity. Every step of the way, Jesus lets go of his rights, his claims. And it begins with his incarnation and culminates in the cross. So Paul then writes, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant by being 
born in the likeness of men, being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the God who made all things by the power of his word, who thought up things like stars and nebulas and whales and apples and relationships, he shows up and begins manifesting his glory by being born as a weak and dependent baby. As someone who depended on his mother to keep him alive. He comes to his own people and suffers rejection, mockery from his brothers. His own people say to him, you are a Samaritan. That is to say, a half-blooded bastard child. You have a demon. That is to say, you curse God. God himself comes and displays his glory by being rejected. Jesus, the radiance of God's glory, takes the cross, heals the sick, does not defend himself, but embraces the suffering in the hopes of a greater glory to come. And that's the second thing we see in Jesus, of how grace, glory can be gracious. How could Jesus be degraded so often and refuse to glorify himself? I last, by the way, five minutes, maybe, on a good day. If you're lobbying accusations at me, I have five minutes, and I'm proud of those five minutes. Before I start defending myself, it used to be like two seconds, right? I cut you off, and no longer. T- Jesus goes a whole life of being falsely accused. So how does he do it? And this is the second piece. Glory is always something given, never taken. Glory is always something given, never taken. And he can do that because he has someone else seeking his glory. Verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Jesus can let all his dignity be taken. He can suffer false accusation. He can be beaten and mocked and stripped because the Father has promised that he will be glorified and vindicated. Look at verse 51. If anyone should keep my word, he will not see death unto the age. That's Jesus' promise to everyone everywhere. But first, it's the Father's promise to Jesus. Did you notice that? Jesus says that in verse 55, I do know the Father and I keep his word. That is to say that he keeps the Father's word because the Father has promised that even in Jesus dying for us, Jesus will defeat death on the third day. And the Father is utterly committed to Jesus' glory. And so he raises Jesus from the grave on the third day and triumphs over death. Jesus lives out the hope of glory. And that's how he can let all of it be taken from him because he looks forward to the Father giving it to him. And that is exactly what the resurrection is. The resurrection is God giving to Jesus the glory that is his. It's his triumph, his delight, his power and weightiness over all the enemies. So that now as Jesus rises from the dead, he puts his foot on the neck of death. 
He receives the glory and attention and delight of the Father and is ascended to the throne to reign. Hallelujah. And so Paul continues and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus is the place where glory and humility meet. Jesus is all of God's humility and his glory in one person. And so Jesus' glory is the gospel for you today. If you would entrust yourself to him, if you would keep his word and not glorify yourself, but trust him to raise you, then you will not taste death. Death will not own you. But you will rise up as well. So Jesus' glory is actually our hope, too, because he shares his resurrection with us. So, Jesus' resurrection is his glory. Glory is this sense of uh, triumph and delight and weight. And Jesus shares that resurrection with us. But think about this for a second. If Jesus' resurrection is his glory and he shares his resurrection with us, does that mean that he shares his glory with us? Wildly? Strangely? Yes. Yes, it does. Jesus shares his glory with us. We are made to receive glory from God. Now, the moment I say that, every single one of you, if you are, have your head about you, uh, probably begin to feel a little sick, <laughs> right? If you've ever been around people who uh, are ready to receive glory, they tend to be some of the most uh, stuck up and arrogant, right? Um, happy to have first place, happy to insist on being loved by everyone. Uh, how is this at all of the gospel? And even asking a question like this, most of us have a gut feeling and say, no, that, that's not right. We should not receive glory from other people. And that's not what I'm saying. In fact, Jesus and this passage agree, even that uh, his opponents, John 5.41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. And, you know, this is a, a 500th year of the Reformation. Uh, and one of the big emphases of the Reformation is uh, something called soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And that's right and true. And in fact, that is essential and crucial, especially as God's grace and his power and his kind presence begin to loom larger and larger in your life. You begin to recognize how much he deserves the credit for. He has given you life. The fact that we exist is because of his will at all. And he has fed us and upholds all things by his word. And he is tender in his fatherly care and provision. And how much more, Florida, are we to find that above and beyond his creational love, we are all enemies. <laughs> we have been rebels. And even so, the Lord came and sought us and bathed us and forgived us. And he has done so at his own cost. And so we contribute nothing to our salvation. We are utterly dependent on his working in us, which he has so powerfully and gladly and kindly done in Jesus and continues to do by his spirit through his church. We love the Lord. 
Lord, we love you. What do we have that we have not received? Every kindness comes from your hand, Lord. You have sought us out. You have blessed us. You have tended to us as a father. You have gladly given us everything. So not to us, Lord, not to us be the glory, but to your name. Amen. But, but what do we do with all these other passages? Let me open up the fire hose on you for just a minute here. I'm going to read to you a collection of verses, mostly just from John. John 5.44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? John 12.26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Many of the Pharisees who believed in Jesus and would not admit it, John says in 12.43 that they did this because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John 17, 22, Jesus speaking to the Father, the glory that you, Father, have given to me, Jesus, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And you know what? We could do this all day. Many other places in the Old Testament, like the one I read to you, those who honor me, I will honor or to translate another way, those who glorify me, I will what? Glorify. It feels strange for us to read these things because for most of us, we assume that Jesus, God's glory is like a, a peach pie. And if I get a slice of it, that means there's less of it for God. And so when we read passages where God says, uh, I will not share my glory with another, Isaiah 48, we think the Lord is saying, the pie is mine, <laughs> all mine. Don't touch. And so we're happy to do that because um, we want to be humble and we content ourselves with a 0% because we really actually do love the Lord and we would never want to dishonor him, of course. But God's glory is not like a pie. Pies are glorious, but that's not the point. God's glory is not like a pie. It's not a zero-sum game where all the pieces add up to 100%. Let me give you an illustration instead. In the mornings, I'm usually the first one to wake up and this means that I get uh, the first hug to hug my wife when she's still groggy. It's like the most tender moment of the day. Except that there's a little three-year-old fuzzy-headed pixie who roams around my house in the mornings with a blankie and a bunny looking for affection. And so the moment she sees me and my wife hug, you know what she does? She comes over and hugs our legs and then starts wheeling her head in between us. She cannot let us <laughs> have a moment alone. Um, <laughs> so we ignore her for a second, and then finally we let her in, and we together, out of the overflow of our affection for each other, turn our attention to her. God's glory is much more like love in a home. You know, uh, when we went from having two kids to three, we moved from man-to-man -man defense to zone defense, which is uh, an intense moment as parents. And I remember being a little bit nervous about this. And someone told me, you know, um, yes, of course, you're going to be much more tired. Absolutely. But you need to know that the love in your home is actually not divided by having more kids. It's actually multiplied. As you let more people into the love of your home, it actually abounds the Father's 
glory is his delight and attentive love, which he gives freely to the Son, who gladly receives it, and in turn sets his delight and affection on the Spirit, who together with the Son gladly returns the affection of the Father and the Son back to the Father, and so God's glory within himself is multiplied. And so also we are brought into that same glory. Now it's not appropriate for us to share in God's glory as God, just like it's not appropriate for my children to experience the full range of affection my wife and I share for each other. That's a unique and distinct relationship. And yet what? It is in the context, it is in the overflow of our delight in each other that our children are welcomed in that they delight in our delight. And this is what happens with us and the Father. Through the Son, we have been adopted and united to Jesus. So that now, the children have a share in the glory that's going on in God Himself. Between the Father, Son, and Spirit, we get to nuzzle our heads in between. We get a share this is what you are made for, is to actually taste and see and participate in God's glory that he gladly displays for your good. You are made to long for God's glory in your life and around you, to long for God's goodness, to be poured out the overflow of his delight, his triumph, his attention, to remake the world that you live in. And so, also... For his glory to be multiplied. It's not our glory. It is his. But as creatures, we get a share in it. So what do we do with this? Why does this matter? Well, first, let me just say this. You and I are freed from seeking our own glory. You're free. You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to seek your own glory. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to claw after dignity. You, friends can be overlooked. You can be disrespected. You can be hurt in your marriages, in your work, in your friendships, among your roommates. You can let your accomplishments be ignored because you don't need them to give you respect and glory anymore. You're free. I find myself uh, tremendously convicted as I read this passage because of the way that Jesus responds to these accusations. He's able to let himself be wrongly accused and simply states the truth in response. He says, uh, if I were to say what you guys are saying, I'd be a liar like you all, but I do know the Father and I keep his word. And that's the other thing for us. You are free to stop seeking your own glory, but you are also freed to seek God's glory. You are freed to seek God's glory and to long for it. That is to say, you don't have to give up the hope of being known, of having the truth come out, of having justice prevail and God vindicate you. You are actually freed to long for those things. We think that humility is acting like we don't want glory, acting like we don't want someone to notice us, acting like we don't want to be praised. But I'll tell you right now, that is not humility. That's pretense, and it's false modesty. In fact, it's a very clever way of making sure that we are praised. Oh, well, I would never accept praise like that. Keep it coming, please. 
In fact, it comes from a much scarier place than that. It comes from a heart that has been so deeply hurt and hardened that it does not believe that anyone could truly behold you with delight. That's where that comes from. That we have given up all hope of someone noticing, in particular of God noticing, hearing, seeing, honoring, glorifying us. And so Jesus' resurrection is God's loud declaration to all mankind that if you would not glorify yourself and you would put your hope in him, then you will have glory. You will stand with Jesus on the last day and say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your power? Jesus has crushed you, and I'm with him. And I'm with all of God's people, and we have prevailed because I have a share in the glory. That is what you're made for. You are made to long for that glory, to have a share in it. And so in the places that you are degraded and overlooked and disrespected, you can now call out to God in the true pain, in the true grief of being overlooked, because you are made to long for more. Do you see that? What this means is that God calls you to long and actually take on the risk of hoping for his glory, for his goodness, for his delight to be poured out on all creation. And that means that he takes so very seriously your grief and the pain of being degraded and disrespected and trampled upon. And so that means that he stands ready to listen to you just as he listened to Jesus on the cross and vindicated him three days later. This is your hope. And if this is your hope, what it means is you can actually begin speaking the truth in love. You can pursue justice without revenge. You can work for good and fight evil for the sake of peace and other people's good because you are no longer fighting for your glory but for God's. And so he will gladly share it with you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have crushed the head of death. Lord, that is what we long for. We long for your glory to be displayed, to behold and partake in the goodness that you have created. Lord, there is so much grief in our lives as we watch friends die, as we suffer through relationships. And so, Lord, we pray that you would free us to long for more and to call out to you in our grief and our pain with the great promise that you raise the dead. And so, Lord, we put our hope in you and pray that you would meet us even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and confess our faith together. You can respond with the bold text in the commitment section. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. Today we're going to be praying for John, so if you want to come up, brother. Uh, we'll be praying for John as he begins his summer of uh, ministry extravaganza among us. Uh,